Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. Car enthusiasts have been bolting carbon fiber wheels onto high-performance vehicles for years. But the hitherto luxury add-on brings real benefits to vehicle weight and energy economy, both of which have a new importance in the age of EVs. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Melina Haddad and I speak with Jake Dingle, CEO of Carbon Revolution. Carbon Revolution is working to scale up its carbon fiber wheel production to provide the wheels as a mass-produced staple in the industry. It announced a $270 million combination with Twin Ridge Capital in November to accelerate these plans. He describes the major business advantages in bumping up from the ASX to a U.S. exchange, and how the transaction has opened up some financing doors even while it is still pending close. Take a listen. Just to get started, Jake, you know, some of our listeners may not consider the wheels to be the part of the vehicle that is going through a lot of technological advancement right now, but Carbon Revolution has racked up 58 patents so far with 31 more pending, all focused on the wheels. So what are some of the innovations that you've been able to generate there? Well, firstly, wheels have not really progressed very much since the introduction of aluminum wheels back in the 70s. Um, So this really is a big step forward. Our wheels are made from carbon fiber, which is a very sophisticated, complex material to work with, but it's extremely light and extremely strong. Um, And it enables us to take up to 50% of the weight out of a wheel versus a conventional aluminum wheel, even more if you compare it with a steel wheel. But it's a really challenging material to work with. So in order to do what we've done, you need to have advanced engineering capabilities and advanced manufacturing capabilities to do that. But yes, it really is the next step change in wheel technology, having really seen no major step forward since the advent of aluminum wheels some 40 to 50 years ago. Yeah, and it seems like carbon fiber wheels, they've been around for a little bit, but they've long been sort of considered a a nice aftermarket add-on for car enthusiasts, but it wasn't something that was coming stock on vehicles off the line very often, but that seems like that's changing now. What, What are you seeing there? Well, we set this business up to be a disruptor. So our focus right from the outset was on the OEM, so the the car manufacturers rather than aftermarket. So even though, like a lot of new technologies that, that are introduced and taken up and ultimately become mainstream, this has started at the premium performance luxury end of the market. And that's still an enormous part of the market. Automotive wheel market is around about $38 billion a year. So it's an enormous market. We've come in at the top end but will trickle down as aluminum wheels did. And so by setting the business up to be a disruptor and to be a high volume supplier to the automotive OEMs, we've enabled ourselves to set up to scale and to take cost out and to to facilitate that expansion and growth. That's really the difference in terms of how we've approached this versus anybody else that's tried to do carbon fiber wheels. And that's why we're really the only company in the world that, that has these multiple programs and a scale manufacturing facility to be able to do the sort of volumes that we're already doing and then into the future to be able to be a real disruptor. Right. And just going off of that, many of your competitors are still aftermarket focused. So with that in mind, can you dive a bit deeper into what your strategy has been for getting integrated with the major OEMs? Yeah, sure. So they're very, very different markets. Um, If you are to be an OEM supplier, you're dealing with very large, sophisticated engineering organizations that have an extremely high risk aversion or or sense of risk around any safety critical technology like this. So the validation requirements for the product itself to ensure that it's safe to be integrated onto a vehicle 
And then the expectations and demands around quality, so the ability to keep producing at a level of quality that meets their expectations, and, and then to be able to grow volume to something very much larger than anything you ever see in the aftermarket, that creates an enormous barrier to entry. So the customer relationships and the ability to take a customer in this market, these very large, sophisticated global car makers, introduce a brand new technology in a safety critical part of the vehicle, get them comfortable enough to introduce it on a, on a relatively small niche vehicle, as we've done in the initial stages of adoption, um, where it is high profile, but not particularly high volume. And then to be able to work through to offer it in higher volumes to larger vehicle platforms, that creates a relationship. It creates a level of trust and understanding of, of the safety capability and the quality capability of, of the technology in the company. And that represents a very high entry barrier. Aftermarket does not have those sorts of entry barriers. It's, it's far easier to introduce products into the aftermarket. And the, the market is much smaller and, and more fragmented. So really, that's why going back over a decade, we set out to be an OEM supplier. And so the way we've structured the business, the way we've targeted our technology, our technology strategy and the evolution of the, both the product and the processes that make the product have all been directed towards high volumes, high levels of quality, meeting the OEM's requirements in those regards and, and ensuring that, that we have strong customer relationships. Uh, and that's really a, a huge blocker. It's a very, very strong entry barrier because whilst our customers love the idea of this technology and wanted to see it introduced and continue to want to see it proliferate, particularly as they shift to EVs, they are very, very risk averse. And so they invested heavily to make sure that the supply of it was going to meet all of those requirements and they partnered with us very strongly. It's unlikely that they would invest that much again to bring somebody up to this stage. They would expect anybody else coming to them with an alternative version of this to be effectively comparable and that makes it very difficult for anyone to follow. And you've sold over 60,000 wheels to date. So I'm interested to hear what have been your best-selling products so far and then looking ahead, how do you expect that to change? Well, our best, each of our programs has exceeded expectations in terms of volumes. So anywhere from a little more than was expected in the original contract to, to around double. Um, so we've got a, a very good track record of, of over-delivering uh, or the demand being in excess of what, what our customers originally um, estimated it to be. Uh, that's both in terms of actual volumes demanded and also the length of the program. So, so we've produced more wheels in every case than, than we uh, we had been originally contracted to do, which is great. And, and anecdotally, you know, we have customers regularly saying to us, how much more of this can you make with the available tooling and the available capacity? Because we'll take everything that you can possibly make. Into the future, as we transition into higher volume, larger platforms, and particularly the SUV and, and pickup space that we're now getting into, and particularly as the OEMs electrify and the demands for weight-saving technologies like this really, really accelerate, uh, we're seeing a, a, a big step up in terms of demand. So moving through that adoption curve from the early niche programs that, that you'll see in the public domain now, you will have seen last week, the Range Rover Sport has just been launched with our wheels. Fantastic vehicle, terrific program and a, and a great partnership with JLR. That's the first publicly announced SUV program. Um, and you can see how the, how the technology fits with, with large vehicle platforms like that that need very strong but very light wheels. In terms of what, what's coming in the future, we're seeing demand accelerating, 
more programs being awarded. Even just in that number of months, we've seen a, a doubling in what we see as our forward book of business and it's increasingly moving towards electrified vehicles which you would imagine because of the way the industry is going but increasingly being seen as an enabling technology for some of these larger vehicle platforms as well that are really struggling with weight as they move into this next generation and we can offer a huge step change in weight as wheels are getting bigger they're getting heavier we're able to offer a, a very meaningful weight saving 60 to 70 kilograms in some cases which is sort of 150 pounds in the part of the vehicle that it matters the most, the rotating unsprung mass on the corners of the vehicle. Yeah, and I wanted to get into that a little bit more too. And just, I mean, I think it's it's obviously intuitive that, that lighter is better and EVs, we know that those cars and those builds are getting heavier and heavier. But could you kind of walk through just how that translates into value, both in terms of the EV's performance and then also in terms of value for the OEM and onto the end customer? Yeah, sure. So there are a number of different ways that, that this adds significant value. The first, most obvious, is in range. So as a significant weight-saving technology, it, it directly contributes to range. And that can be anywhere between 5% and 10% extension. 5% if you're just purely adding the wheels and, and being able to re replace that weight save with, with additional battery, you can see it more than 5% directly in terms of additional range. But if it's fully integrated into the vehicle and you take advantage of other elements like the ability to create more efficient aerodynamic shapes, the NVH or the, the noise transmission benefit, given that this is quite a damped material, means that additional weight can be taken out. Other knock-on benefits means that up to 10% is, is actually possible. And that, from a range point of view, that's a really, really big number, anywhere between 5 and 10% for a bolt-on technology that doesn't require investment in the plant that's manufacturing in the way that anything on the body of the vehicle would or in the chassis would. That, that's really meaningful. And, and there is obviously a significant competitive environment around range, trying to deal with consumers' range anxiety, given that these vehicles go a lot less far on a charge than they used to on a tank of fuel. There's a, a couple of other important aspects, though. Um, one is around regulatory drivers. So the car makers are dealing with, still dealing with cafe credits, and the ability to meet the requirements of the regulator in terms of corporate average fuel economy. The ability to offer significant weight savings means that we can very meaningfully help them to keep these larger vehicles, particularly within weight class limits, that means that they count towards their cafe credits. And that's worth an enormous amount. It means that the EV continues to contribute to the corporate average fuel economy and it means that they can continue to sell the, the ICE or internal combustion engine vehicles alongside the EVs and continue with that business model. The point at which they're too heavy to do that means that there are penalties and, and things that could otherwise be avoided if you can take weight out. So being able to offer this much weight, you know, up to 150 pounds of weight saving, is a very meaningful way to, to hit those targets. And the final one is just around structure. You've probably noticed in the last 30 years, wheels have continued to get bigger and bigger. That's really been driven by the studios and the designers and requirements of the aesthetics of vehicles. Uh, and that won't change. That's the, the designers within the car makers tend to have a very significant impact on what the engineers then have to go and engineer into vehicles. And so as wheels get up to 23 and 24 inches, and the one that we've just launched with the JLR is, is a 23-inch wheel, in aluminum, they're incredibly heavy. And as you add more weight for the strength required to take the even heavier EV versions of these vehicles, 
you're starting to see structural problems. So having that much weight on the corners of the vehicle or the ends of, of the axles creates really significant structural issues. And so rather than having to redesign, retool the connecting structures, the suspension, those sorts of things, which is high investment cost, you can replace those very heavy aluminum wheels with much lighter carbon fiber wheels that are half the weight. So they're, they're the weight of a much, much smaller aluminum wheel and you avoid a lot of other engineering challenges that may add weight. And so those three areas really, range is the obvious one. Regulatory drivers are, are of, of significant importance, particularly at the moment through this transition period, and then just structural performance, which is avoiding that knock-on additional weight, weight issue by having to engineer stronger and heavier structures. So we're helping in all of those ways. And in the future, Aerodynamics for more range, NVH for less sound deadening material. They're the sort of next level or the next tier of benefit that, that we're starting to get to. Because frankly, what we're designing and, and what you've seen on the road are not really, they're not aerodynamically or geometrically really optimised for the material. They're, they're really rendering much more traditional wheel designs in carbon fibre. So there's still a long way to go in terms of getting the full benefit of this technology. Yeah, and getting more into that on, on your end, it seems like Carbon Revolution is doing a lot to really expand its own production capacity right now with a few different plans in the works. Can you walk through how that's going right now and what does the full plan look like for expanding your production end? So we, we have our manufacturing facility in Australia at the moment. Obviously, that's where the company has grown. The majority of the volume and the capacity that we expect to produce from Australia is already awarded. So we have very strong revenue visibility for the coming years and to take us to what we expect to be the full capacity of the plant in Australia, which is significantly higher than what, what we produced last year. It's multiples of that, for example. But the Australian facilities is a really important development area for all of our process, both our product technology and our process technology. <laughs> We're implementing what we call our first mega line, which is a unit of capacity that really automates and industrializes all of our processes so that we have as efficient a manufacturing process as we can achieve. And we really optimize the flow of materials and the way that it's, they're moved and automated in between the processes in order to, to set up a stable and, and highly automated manufacturing environment. And that will take us to you know, roughly 80 to 90,000 wheels a year, we think, which is still a, a very small number of wheels by global standards. What that sets us up to be able to do is to then expand further in more strategically located geographies. So getting closer to our customers, reducing some of the supply chain issues that we have by bringing expensive raw materials from the Northern Hemisphere, bringing them to the Southern Hemisphere, manufacturing wheels and then sending them back to the northern hemisphere where our customers are so we would look to expand our manufacturing capacity into north america a very important region for us the actual location yet to be finalized but expanding significantly and this is driven by our customers demand what we understand as to be their requirement and desire to, to take a lot more of this technology so having perfected what we do in australia which we're in the midst of doing at the moment we will then be able to multiply quite significantly the, the number of mega lines that we have and put them in a much more strategically located place to be able to service our customers. And particularly in North America, we see that would be the first priority for us. And beyond your initial capital plan, what else would this deal's proceeds be used for? I know you briefly touched on international expansion, but are you looking at M&A at all? 
No, the, the merger and the, the relisting and access to capital markets is really to, to underpin the expansion that we see that's coming in terms of demand from our customers. So we have a, a, a very good visibility of what we think the demand will be and a well-developed plan in terms of what the required expansion would be in terms of our, um, our manufacturing capacity. So the proceeds will go towards that expansion, completing what, we, what we're doing in Australia, which, as I said, we, we largely have the awarded business to fill the plant here in Australia, so very good revenue visibility to fill the Australian plant, but then to start to expand offshore to continue to service really the same customers and some additional customers with much higher volumes. So it will all go into productive capacity and expanding in order to become much more efficient, reduce the working capital penalties as well of, of being so far away and being able to reliably deliver much more of the technology as it becomes more and more disruptive. Got it. And how have the supply chain issues that we've been seeing impact you, if at all? Did it cause more problems in terms of getting supplies to you or for getting your finished products out of Australia? The, um, the biggest issue that we've seen from a supply chain point of view really has been that through COVID, um, our customers had to close factories and, and idle production as they were dealing with the, the early stages of COVID in their own facilities. And then through 2021, we saw the semiconductor chip shortage, and that provided interruptions in the supply chains of our customers again. And that, that's gone on all the way through into, into the last year. We think we're through the worst of that now, but it certainly has disrupted our throughput and our forecasts in a challenging way. But we've come through that very well. And a lot of the delays that we've seen, programs that you've seen awarded with our wheels over the last 12 months, including the, the Corvette um, with General Motors and, and the most recent launch, the Range Rover Sport with JLR. There have been delays with those programs that are quite well publicised, but they've now come to market. So they were delays rather than cancellations. So it was a challenging period, but we're seeing very good recovery from that now. And our business has come out stronger. You know, these things are challenging, but tend to be stronger when you come out the other end of them. And certainly the supply chain, our supply chain and uh, the way that we have sourced our materials, we've been able to maintain supply and not had any major disruptions at all in that regard. Great. And I wanted to get down a little more into the granular detail, perhaps not too granular, but nonetheless, on some of those contracts. Um, you know, we have seen some SPAC targets face some scrutiny, specifically in the EV space, for <laughs> citing contract figures early on that weren't quite as firm as they initially appeared. So it sounds like you've been delivering on these contracts for a long time, for a while. But just kind of what more detail can you give in terms of how certain it is that those the dollars in those, those awarded contracts are going to be translated into concrete revenue moving forward? Yeah, so to start with, so this year, we're 100% of what we're forecasting in our revenue is actually uh, is actually contracted, and next year it's around about 96%. So there's very, for the next two years, very, very good visibility from awarded programs. The only thing that, that really impacts that in terms of volume is whether our customers have changes in their own ordering patterns. And as I've said in the past, We've seen in all cases that the demand has been higher than what was originally contracted. Now, we can't be 100% sure which way that's going to go. And obviously, we've seen disruptions. But these are, these are contracted programs that we're supplying, having to provide a certain capacity. The automotive industry doesn't work on a take-or-pay basis. Nobody, nobody in the Tier 1 space um, has a take-or-pay arrangement, um, as far as we're aware. And we've been in the industry for quite a long time now. But... Um, what we have as an advantage is that the vehicle programs that we're that we're on are very high profile. They tend to be 
well and truly sold out into the future. So our customers, as I mentioned before, we more often than not, we are pushed for producing more, you know, more than we've originally been asked to produce because of the demand being very strong. So there's really never been a concern for us in terms of whether the demand's there for the product from the end consumer. The only challenges that you can foresee is, is in terms of sort of supply chains and our customers' manufacturing strategy. That really, I think we've seen a lot of that play out over the last couple of years. As I said, we're on high-profile programs, very good forward visibility for our, our customers in terms of their orders, not really subject to some of the sort of bigger economic or macroeconomic fluctuations or volatilities that you see with much more mainstream programs. Yeah, and, and beginning to look at the the SPAC transaction a little bit here, you know, Carbon Revolution, you were public about you were looking for uh, some source of a capital infusion before the deal was announced. And uh, you just recently announced that you've secured a $60 million debt facility to help your rollout right now. And uh, so how did the pending SPAC deal help get that debt raised done? And, and what does that do for you? So the merger with Twin Ridge we saw and, and have seen as, as a fantastic way of accessing the capital that we need to grow. So over a year ago, we set out to, to find the right approach to accessing capital. We, we didn't go into it saying we have to do this kind of transaction or that kind of transaction. We just knew that our customers had really started to push us in terms of how we would demonstrate the disruptive capability of the technology how would, how would we demonstrate that we had the capacity and the resources to, to do that as they as they provided us with access to more and more important and larger or higher volume segments of, of their portfolio or platforms. So we went into this knowing that a lot of our demand was going to be coming from North America as it, as it has. The move to electric vehicles was going to really accelerate the demand and that we needed to demonstrate not just that we had an operational strategy or a manufacturing strategy that could deliver disruption, but also a balance sheet could demonstrate that we were able to access the capital to, to build factories and put in capacity fast enough to, to go with the demand. So that led us through a, a very detailed process, led us ultimately to, to Twin Ridge as a, as a potential partner. Then I think as we got to know each other, we realised that this was a fantastic fit. They're very, very credible, understand the industry very well, very good contacts in the capital markets and ability to help us with that. It's a, it's, a, it's a great strategy. It takes longer to do a SPAC deal. It gives you more time to, to inform and to bring the market up to speed with what you're doing. And it's not what we're doing. It's not a simple, straightforward, obvious thing as we've been talking about, but it's, it's a very, very attractive space that we are in. Um, for us to just try to list the company in North America without that sort of partnership, you know, we think would have been much more challenging. But but the partnership with Twin Ridge is, is a very, very valuable one. And, and I think, you know, we see the world the same way. They bring some really, really important capabilities, accesses and networks to, to help make sure this is a, an enormous success. And, and the debt facility that you just mentioned is a really good example of that. That's actually IP back. So the, the assets that back that loan include all the intellectual property that we've developed in more than a decade of doing this. In our home market in Australia, that sort of facility is just not available. So that's a really great example of what this opens up for us. Much more innovative, broader opportunities for sourcing the right kind of capital to be able to deliver to our customers what they're demanding. And our customers are some of the largest and most sophisticated companies in the world, obviously. So in order to be able to do that, we need to have an appropriate approach that matches that in terms of accessing the capital to, to grow. And, and really, North America is such an important uh, 
market for us. Um, re, yeah, redomiciling our listing to North America just makes sense in the world. And and the partnership with Twin Ridge is, is obviously, a, as we got to know each other, we realised that was a very logical um, partnership to establish. Right. And so you briefly touched upon this earlier, but I'd be interested to hear more about what you see as being the main benefits and bumping up from the AS Act. Well, really access to capital in a market that obviously understands we're a physical technology company into an automotive industry, which North America is clearly a very significant player in the, in the global automotive industry, but also very, very sophisticated capital markets, very good understanding of what this kind of technology represents in terms of an opportunity to disrupt the automotive industry as it's going through this massive transition from conventional internal combustion engine vehicles to electric vehicles and, and who knows what other sorts of alternative pr propulsion systems come through over the next decade or two. So the understanding of what this technology offers into a, a massive global market that where North America is a very, very significant part of that global market, that translates back into the, the capital markets understanding of these sorts of opportunities. And it's a, it's a more sophisticated view and a much deeper market for the kind of capital that we need to grow to service those customers. As I said, the, the debt facility that we've just put in place is a great example of that. And so it just makes sense. And you know, perhaps years ago, we could have looked to list the company on the US exchange before we decided to list on the, the ASX. But, you know, I think, it, and we can have all sorts of hindsight discussions about that. But um, so it's just it's just matching the, the sources of capital with really the markets that we're servicing and making sure that we have a credible strategy, both for how we grow our capacity and our technology, but also how we fund that. Yeah, that's that's where the logic for doing this really sits. Yeah, definitely. And so as of now, there doesn't seem to be a listed company with exactly your focus and specialization. So what kinds of companies would you say are the best comparisons for carbon revolution? Well, I think I mean, we've looked at comparables in terms of trying to understand what the uh, what the value of this business would be. And I think any any businesses that are in the EV space focused on extending range, whether they're battery technologies or technologies related to batteries, related to other parts of the vehicle, you know, that are looking to facilitate this big transition across to, to the EV space. In addition to that, there are other, this is, this is a technology that fits with conventional vehicles as, as well as it does with, with EVs. So there's a lot of companies that are very successfully supplying as tier ones into the automotive space today um, that, that, are, that are great comparables with, with what we do right now. You've got the likes of Brembo in Italy who supply the high end of the brake market. That's a good comparison or a good comparable for what we are today. But as we move further into the EV space, it will be much more around the, the comparable new technologies that are being seen as enablers for that transition to, to make dramatic improvements in range, sustainability, and, and facilitating this transition on a global scale to, um, to EV, which is going to play out through the, the next decade or two. As I think we're already seeing very significant moves in that direction. So yeah, I think any, any physical technology or even some of the digital technologies that are under underpinning that transition are, are good comparables for what we're doing. 
Yeah, and that's an interesting group in terms of, you know, some of the uh, the EV companies in terms of the the direct battery makers that still have some bits of their technology that's not been fully deployed, or at least in, in some cases is still under development. Whereas your products are out in the market already, I'm, I'm sure you're working on improving you know, margins as, as your capacity grows as well. But so, I mean, just in general, looking at all of those, what do you think are some of the important metrics for investors to keep an eye on in, in terms of comparing you to the rest of the space and sort of tracking Carbon Revolution's progress? Yeah, I think the revenue visibility that we have, I think, is is very important. This is not, as you say, this is this is relatively quite mature compared to some of the other new technologies. We've had the benefit of introducing it to a highly visible but still relatively small segment of the market to prove it out, not just to investors but to our customers. Frankly, that that's what's underpinning this rapid growth that we can see ahead of us. So I think. Um, actual locked-in programs, strength of customer relationships across. I mean, our customers are Ford, General Motors, Jaguar, Land Rover, Ferrari. We're dealing with the global tier one auto manufacturers, and that will will continue to add to that. So I think the strength of, uh, or track record, strength of customer relationships and the nature of those customers and the adoption of the technology that's already been demonstrated. And we're on a, a classic adoption S-curve where we've really serviced a niche part of the market. We're now moving into beyond just servicing that high-performance luxury niche part of the, the early stage of the market now into really the premium next segment and then mainstream comes beyond that. And because of our automation strategy and because of the way supply chain opportunities are now opening up, as we grow in scale, we become more and more attractive as a customer for our raw materials and, and within the supply chain. That will then dramatically drop the input costs of our raw materials. So you can see there's a pathway that's already playing out. We're already reducing our costs quite dramatically. But as we grow and, and relocate manufacturing or located in, in offshore locations, that will drive all of our direct input costs down. And then we have a, a, a business model that's very leveraged to, to fix costs because of the nature of our relationships with our customers. We will see very good improvement in our contribution margins and our overall profit margins because our fixed costs don't have to move particularly significantly as we grow volume very significantly. And, and we'll see those direct costs coming down. Obviously, the labour input costs and the raw material input costs coming down quite dramatically as we grow. So those factors are all really important to understand what this business can deliver as we grow beyond the early adoption that you've seen in the market through to the next big chunk. And, and bear in mind, this is uh, the premium segment of the market. If it's 10%, it's still around 40 million wheels or 10 million vehicles. So that is an enormous part of the market, even though the total market is around 100 million vehicles. And as I said, $38 billion of market for wheels into the automotive space each year is, is enormous. So the adoption curve that we're on, probably you would say it will be supply constrained. We're the only ones that are doing this at the moment uh, at this scale, but uh, it's a highly attractive offering. OEMs are wanting it in higher volumes, obviously, as I've said. So you know the, the opportunity to, to continue to lead and to put capacity in and to grow into that space off, off the basis that we've started with is, is a really strong opportunity. You know, we expect there will be competition at some point, but the aim is to have a better product, a better manufacturing process, and to be the lowest cost producer as well due to, due to this strategy. 
And so looking forward, and as you're sort of developing your IP portfolio there, have you thought about getting into other carbon fiber components as a part of the car? As I imagine, there's other parts that can be made lighter. There's certainly ways that the intellectual property and the techniques that we've developed can be used for other the other parts that are on the vehicle. But in fact, given that our IP and our advantage is really around wheels, which are a complex thing to develop uh, and particularly complex to be made from carbon fibre, our other opportunities really are in wheels for other applications. So we've already, under a, a federally funded program, we've already developed aircraft, the, the first stages of aircraft wheels. So you can imagine in an aircraft, the value of weight savings is even higher than it is in road vehicles. And so wheels for aircraft and ultimately wheels for, for industrial applications on you know, long-haul trucks and, and transit vehicles, commercial applications, is an obvious adjacency to what we do today, probably more so than getting into other parts of the car itself. We would never say never for any of these things, but really we've embarked on probably the most complicated individual component on a vehicle to render in carbon fiber and and in so doing we've developed intellectual property in the way we design the product use the material and the way we manufacture it that's equally applicable for wheels that go on aircraft and wheels that go on commercial vehicles and so they're probably in order to best exploit what we've developed over the years in terms of an advantage and intellectual property they're probably additional massive markets that we could go into where we would probably get a better benefit from what we've done than to use it on much simpler products on the vehicle. But as I said, you know, there are techniques that we've developed that would be very applicable for some of those other products. Got it. And so just going off of that, uh, with those costs coming down and weight becoming even more important with EVs, just how much of the overall wheel market could be disrupted in the coming years? Well, if you look at what aluminum did, that came in in the, in the 70s, really, and looked probably at that stage very much like what we look like today. The aluminum wheel segment of the total market is now over 50% and still taking share off steel. So there are very few. So steel is the is the other um, material. If you look at that from, a, from an overall market adoption point of view, there is no reason why you wouldn't see a similar kind of adoption curve for carbon fiber. In fact, the weight saving benefits and the other knock-on benefits are potentially more significant than, than what drove aluminum into the market. So as long as the supply chain can respond and the capacity can be put in place, um, we would see no real impediment to adoption as our costs are coming down. So you know, we will be working hard on obviously on perfecting our manufacturing processes so that we can expand manufacturing. We, we're already working hard on supply chain partnerships and and making sure we secure raw materials at the right volume and the right cost so that we can offer this disruption. And and aluminum wheels are still sold at a very significant premium to steel. We're at a a significant premium to aluminum at the moment, but that can continue to, to come down. But we will always offer value relative to conventional wheel technologies because of all the benefits that that we provide. And so I expect to see a similar thing play out. And that's obviously a very good and very obvious case study to to use for, for what we can do with this technology.